We're going to be continuing through the book. We left off last week in chapter 13, so we're going to pick it up in chapter 14. And um, I'm going to read, and then we'll pray together and dive in to the word. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary. Yeah, this one instead? Sweet deal. Um, let's go verse 16. I forgot where I was. <laughs> verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, that it would speak. That your word, which is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, I pray that it would pierce our hearts, pierce our souls, that it would transform our minds, and that we would walk away with eyes fixed on you, the author and finisher of our faith. And that your grace and that your love would be so real, so close, so tangible, that it truly would transform everything. Thank you for what you're doing. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak and that you'd help me to just get out of the way. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The book of Genesis chapter 3, it answers a very important question that every person has to ask and every philosophy has to answer. And that is, what is wrong with the world? (laughs) What is wrong with the world? Every person has to answer it. Every philosophy has to answer it because we all know deep down that something is wrong. (laughs) We look out and we say, uh, this can't be the way things are supposed to be. And if you are part of the Eastern religion, as is kind of popular in Southern Oregon, you might think that what I need to do, what's really wrong with the world is earthly attachments. And so I need to get rid of all earthly attachments and transcend all of them in order to be able to achieve nirvana. 
Or you might be thinking, if you are a non-Christian, secular, humanist type person, you might be thinking there really isn't actually anything wrong with the world, quote unquote. But instead, what we really have to do is just try to perpetuate our species as best as possible. So there really isn't anything wrong in the world in that sense of that there's something wrong is really just a driver to keep our species going. But the Bible has a different approach. The Bible says that there is something wrong with the world, and the thing that is wrong with the world is sin. Sin is what is wrong with the world. And last week and this week is kind of two halves of one whole. Last week we saw the action of sin, Adam and Eve taking and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this week we're going to see the results, the effects of sin. And as we see the effects of sin, it will ultimately be able to tell us what is really wrong with the world. And I'm just going to kind of lay it out there because I'm a planner, so I like it when people tell me where we're going in teachings. So I'm going to just show you all my cards right now. (laughs) The first thing we're going to see is that the world is at war. Then the second thing we're going to see is that our mission, our purpose, our mission has malfunctioned, but ultimately God's grace is the solution. So first, the world is at war. Look with me back at verse 15. God is speaking to the snake, because remember, they take and eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then God comes to Adam, and Adam says, it was the woman's fault, and the woman goes, well, it was the snake's fault, and so then God turns to the snake, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity. That's battle language. (laughs) That is war. Then there are fighting words. This is a struggle between good and evil, between humans and the forces of darkness. The serpent is an agent of chaos, a force of evil. And this world, this life is going to be characterized by a struggle. The word for bruise in the last phrase, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word for bruise is the same in both phrase, meaning equal intensity. They're both going to be mortal blows. They're both going to be intense. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight. This world is at war. And we can see that now today more as as well as any other time. Between 2011 and 2020, according to the uh, the, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, 900,000 Christians were martyred between 2011 and 2020. That's one every six minutes. The serpent's fangs are out. His ways are slithering through this world. And we all, not just on a global scale, but on an individual scale, we can resonate with the Apostle Paul when he says in the book of Romans, the thing that I want to do, I don't do. And the thing that I don't want to do, I do, a wretched man that I am. That's a war. That's a battle. Something's not right in this world because the world is at war with evil and with darkness. But God is stronger than evil. God is bigger than evil. And this is what he, look with me back at verse 14. God speaking and he says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. On your belly you shall go. Remember, this is a serpent. This is a snake. When a snake is in attack position, the power position, it's up on its back ready to strike, right? 
And so with God saying, on your belly you shall go, he's no longer in the position of power. He's no longer in the position of authority. Instead, on his belly he shall go and dust you shall eat. That's a euphemism for eventually you will die. Yes, this is a battle, but God is stronger than evil. On his belly he shall go. He's no longer in the position of power. He's no longer in the position of authority. And even though difficult things happen here, and this is a struggle, eventually all of the evil in this world, all of the wrong things in this world, will be vanquished, will end, and will be no more. That's the promise that's here. And it is one of the most encouraging things for me to realize that God is truly in control and over suffering and evil. He by no means causes it, he, he by no means condones it, yet it is by no means outside of his authority. And one of the most compelling examples biblically for that, to me, is in the book of Acts chapter 4. In the book of Acts, the disciples, they were preaching the word, and yet they were being persecuted by the religious leaders. And in the midst of that persecution, they went to the Lord in prayer. And here's what they say when, while they're praying to the Lord. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, it says, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They're praying and they say, your holy servant, Jesus, Jesus, God in the flesh, the most terrible atrocity that had ever happened in the history of the world is that God himself went through an unjust trial and then was crucified. That is the most unjust thing that ever happened, and yet it says in the book of Acts chapter 4 that even that was underneath God's authority and God's plan. Even that was not a surprise to him. Even that, he was over it, and he brought incredible good out of it, and it is God's sovereignty over all things that gives incredible weight to the most beloved promise of scripture in Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And let's really think about that for a sec. All things together work together for the good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Because God is in control, because he is over it, even the wrong things, even the evil things, even the suffering, even the difficulty, even the pain in this world will ultimately one day contribute to the good the ultimate undoing of evil isn't just that it ends. It's that it unwillingly and unwittingly and unknowingly contributes to the good and to the glory of God. That's the undoing of evil. It's not just that it ends, but that it's reversed. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says in the book, The Great Divorce, heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Heaven will work backwards. All things will work together for the good. Even the wrong things in this world will ultimately contribute to the glory of God. And that is the ultimate undoing of evil. The serpent is no longer in attack position. He's on his belly. And he's going to eat dust. But this world is at war. This world is a battleground. And in this battleground, we live our lives in that struggle where there's 
enmity between us and evil. And not only that, our mission has malfunctioned. Our mission has malfunctioned. Look with me back at verses 16 through 19. We're going to see God talk to the woman and God talk to the man. And in talking to both of them, you're going to see that it really relates heavily to the creation mandate or the cultural mandate that we saw back in the first chapters, where after God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, he says, go and fill the earth and subdue it. Go fill the earth and subdue it. And now, after sin and after the curse, or in the curse, it's going to be against both filling the earth and subduing it. It's going to make those things, the mission, malfunction. So let's look at verse 16. We're going to start with the mission to fill the earth. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. As a young single man, I'm probably the last person <laughs> who should be commenting on giving birth <laughs> and the pain that goes along with it. But thank you, Sam. I'm here, so <laughs> we'll give it a shot. <laughs> the mission to fill the earth has malfunctioned. It says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. The word for pain there, it connotes not just physical pain, but also psychological pain. So stress, anxiety, worry, from start to finish. So some of your Bibles might say from conception to childbearing. What is this meaning? It's the worry, it's the anxiety of, will I get pregnant? Will, will I actually end up with somebody? Will I be able, will the baby develop healthy in my womb? Will the birthing process be safe? Will something go wrong? And the worry and the anxiety from start to finish is the result of sin because things don't function properly and things don't function the way that they were originally intended. And sometimes in this life, there are miscarriages. Babies sometimes aren't born healthy. Sometimes couples can't get pregnant. And in that moment, when we realize that all of this is the root of sin, that sin is the problem, some of us can think, then God is punishing me for my sin. That's why this happened. That's why I couldn't get pregnant. That's why this, whatever problem it is, it's because I'm being punished for my sin. And I want to tell you that if you believe in Jesus then all of the punishment for your sin has been placed upon him, placed upon Jesus on the cross. Therefore, it would be unjust for God to punish you for your sin again. So yes, bad things happen, and yes, they're underneath God's authority, but they are not God punishing you for your sin. It's not punishment. Instead, you are a son and a daughter of the king, and with his heavenly father role, he does sometime discipline, but it's never punishment for sin retributively because if it was that, we would all be in hell. That's the reality. And the best example of this is, is in the book of John chapter nine. We're in the book of John chapter nine. Jesus is walking with his disciples and the disciples see a man who was born blind. And the disciples ask Jesus, 
Who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? And Jesus says, neither, basically. It's that the work of God might be worked in him. Yes, difficult things happen. Yes, this is a battle. And yes, our mission has malfunctioned because of sin, but it is not retributive punishment. If you believe in Jesus, it is not retributive punishment. So the mission has malfunctioned. The stress over children is difficult. But not only is there stress over children, there's also strife in the home. Look at the next phrase of the verse. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. No landmines here, so that's good. Um, (laughs) Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In reading about this, there's a variety of different ways that it could be interpreted. But the one that was the most convincing for me is that this almost exact phrase, the desire will be contrary to your husband, is used in the next chapter over. In the next chapter, in chapter 4, God is talking to Cain, and he says, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is contrary to you, and you must rule over it. Almost the exact same thing. And so, it stands to reason to me that A marriage relationship, first and foremost, was meant to be godly, loving, humble, servant leadership by the man, and then joyful, loving support from the woman. And that design is now going to be filled with conflict. We're going to talk about the guys in a little bit, but girls first, because that's the order of the text, so... (laughs) The girls, the women, the wives' temptation will be to usurp that authority. Usurp that authority and then create then that strife and tension within the home. And then the husband's response to rule over them, that's good. It's despotic is that that word for rule, is, is not loving, gracious leadership. And the bottom line, no matter which way you interpret it, is that there's strife in the home that the original design of loving servant leadership and joyful support is undermined so that there is strife, there's tension, there's difficulty within the home. And then he goes on to talk to the guys, and now the mission, not just to fill the earth, but to subdue the earth, is made difficult. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. First, it's really interesting, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That was one of the primary factors of the very first sin. Listen to the voice of your wife. I'm going to remember that for when I'm married. Maybe that's why I'm still single. I don't know. (laughs) But listen to the voice of your wife. Really what contributed in that first sin was, again, the God-ordained design of joyful support and loving leadership was undermined when the serpent went to Adam and Adam, or went to Eve instead of Adam, the leader, 
and went to Eve and subverted that authority, and Adam stood by passively. One of the perennial problems for men is passivity. Not taking responsibility for actions, not taking responsibility for the things that happen in our homes, in our lives, in our communities, but instead passively stepping back and trying to wash our hands of the situation, trying to not take responsibility. That's one of the perennial problems for men, and that was really comes from our very first father, Adam. And it wasn't just um, stepping back passively, it was also declaring independence. Every good leader is ultimately submitted to God's authority. But Adam stepped out from underneath God's authority by saying, I will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I will make the decisions for myself. Thank you very much. I'm no longer submitted to your authority. I'm going to make the decision for myself, and I'm not going to take responsibility for my actions. That was the dynamic there. And that sin ended up resulting in, as it says in verse 17, you cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The ground is cursed, and the mission to subdue the earth becomes difficult. Again, cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. That word for pain is not just physical, but psychological. There's worry, there's stress, there's anxiety that surround providing. How am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to make rent? How am I going to put food on the table? The psychological stress that accompanies the physical stress of providing, that now is present because of sin. And ultimately, at the end of the day, sometimes I just feel fried. <laughs> like after all the stress, all of the stuff, all of the work you're trying to do, you come back at the end of the day and you're just fried because there's just so much happening. And then the text goes on to say, not only are you fried, but then it's fruitless. It says, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. It means you put in all this work, all this effort, all of this energy, and the only thing that comes up is thorns and thistles. It's a fraction of what you expected. After so much work and so much time, you don't even end up getting what you're going for. The, the best example I could come up with this was I tried to fix my car one time, and that's uh, the only time I tried to fix it. <laughs> there was something was happening. I, I know we're in Southern Oregon, and all the guys are really good at fixing cars, and I'm just not that way. <laughs> and I was like, what would happen is whenever I would start my car, the RPMs would just jump up really high, even though I wasn't touching the gas. And so my engine was just constantly revving. And so I Googled it, and they're like, oh, it's some sort of idle sensor thing. And I watched the YouTube video of them changing it. And I was like, easy, I can do that. So I go out there with my screw gun, and my screw gun doesn't like fit in like the engine. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, that's not going to work. So I go and get a screwdriver and tried it. And it has the wrong like bit on the end, you know? And so. I'm down at school, so I had like Amazon's, like this set of like really small screwdrivers, and they come, and they're all too small. They're for like little toys. And I was like, oh. all right, so this is like a week into this already, and so I go and like order some different ones, and these ones finally fit. So I finally get the screw, like the right screwdriver into the screw, and I start trying to twist it. And as hard as I can, I couldn't twist it, it was like fused. 
to the car. Like there was, there was no way I could have gotten it. And so finally my solution was I just sold the car. <laughs> I was like, this is like going to destroy my engine eventually because it keeps going up. So I'm just going to get rid of it before something really bad happens. <laughs> and the guy who came up and bought it was like, oh, I know how to fix it. And I was like, I'm happy for you. <laughs> but all this work, all this time, all this energy and all this stuff and it, it's fruitless. It brings forth thorns. It brings forth thistles. It's, it's, it seems like all this effort and all this energy ends up going to nothing. And then finally, not only are you just fried at the end of the day and fruitless, but then you just end up frustrated. Look with me at verse 18. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. What that means is, is Adam is going to be cultivating. He's going to be working. And it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles, which isn't going to be enough for him to be satisfied. And so he's going to have to go out to the plants of the field. He's going to have to go foraging. He's going to have to go around, try to find some berries, try to find some other things in order to be able to try and, and find satisfaction, find fulfillment, find enough food in order to be able to survive. Because the work that he's doing isn't going to be enough. And one of the constant tensions or constant problems that we all can have, or at least I can have, is we can turn our, mi- our mission into our meaning. Meaning we can take the desire to have a family and to um, provide for our family and to do our work, and we can turn this mission into our meaning, but ultimately that's going to leave us frustrated because we're going to be out there in the field trying to work, and it'll never be enough, and then we'll have to go someplace else and work again and try and get more stuff, but it'll never be enough, and if we turn our mission into our meaning, we'll ultimately be frustrated because the mission was never meant to be our meaning in life. Our mission was never meant to provide that satisfaction, to provide that sense of fulfillment. We'll always have to go out into the plants of the field. Always have to keep wanting more. And so if you are in a job and you're thinking this isn't providing the fulfillment and the satisfaction that I was wanting to, it might be because you need to get a different job that's more in accordance with your gifts as an individual, but it might be because you're trying to find your meaning and satisfaction in your work, and it was never meant to be your meaning and satisfaction. Or if you're in a marriage and you're thinking, this marriage just isn't working, I'm not being satisfied, I, I feel so empty, I feel so alone, and this just isn't working, it might be because you are trying to find your satisfaction in your spouse. And that is a weight too big for any person to bear. Or if you're single, and you're willing to just date anybody and everybody because you're trying to find that satisfaction, that meaning, that purpose. It's because you're turning your mission into your meaning. And it was never, no person was ever meant to hold that weight. And if we do that, we're gonna end up frustrated, we're gonna end up empty, we're gonna end up unfulfilled. And the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the best books to show all of us the fact that anything under the sun can never satisfy. The book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. In other words, you have to go out to the plants of the field and try and find more. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantages has their owner but to see them with his eyes? 
As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And the ultimate wage of sin is death. Death cuts everything short. Death, the, the, the work that we have, the, the work that we're trying to do, the family that we're a part of is all cut short because of death and naked we came into the world and naked we will go. Nothing in this life can ultimately satisfy the longing for fulfillment that we have. And that is demonstrated by the fact that there is death. All of our best efforts are not enough. And so this is the problem with the world. The world is at war. Our mission is malfunctioned. And it's ultimately all cut short because of death. That is what the Bible presents as the problem. So now, what is the solution? What is the solution in order to be able to get us out of this problem? And every other religion or philosophy, the solution starts with you. If you go to those Eastern religions and you're trying to get out of earthly attachments in order to be able to achieve nirvana, it's up to you to meditate enough. It's up to you to detach yourself enough in order to be able to achieve that status. If you don't think that there really is any right and wrong, but it's all about the advancement of your own genetic code, then that means you have to go work and do that. It's up to you. It's all up to you. And we naturally take that into our Christian life where we think it's all up to us. We got to figure this out. We got to make it happen. And so, naturally, we come to the, to the Bible and we say, okay, so sin is the problem, I am going to be perfect. If sin is the problem, I'm going to be perfect, and if I ever make a mistake, I'm going to do enough good things in order to be able to make up for it, and hopefully my right is going to outweigh my wrong. And we bring that to it, and we think that it starts with us, that that is the solution. But ultimately, if we think about that for a sec... If we go and we say, I'm not going to do any sin, I'm going to be perfect, and that is one is going to get me out of this problem, what is our motivation in that? Our motivation is selfishness in order to be able to get out of this problem. Is that a good motivation? <laughs> it's actually a sinful motivation. Therefore, tainting every single good work that was done out of that motivation. Therefore, even all of our good deeds only contribute to the problem. <laughs> Every one of our good deeds is ultimately, fundamentally, somewhat tainted, therefore sinful, therefore we're digging a deeper hole. It cannot start with us. The solution cannot be with us. Instead, the solution has to come from God's grace. That's the only solution that will be able to bring us out of the death and the sin that we are in. And latent in this passage, there are some foretastes, some expectations that are fulfilled throughout the rest of Scripture of God's grace. Look with me back at verse 15. Some of you have been in church long enough and you thought that I might have forgotten about it when I didn't say anything in chapter 15, or verse 15. It says, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The church father, Irenaeus, in the second century, was the first person to look at that passage and say, I think that points forward to something. I think that points forward to someone who would be born of woman and then destroy the head of the snake, and in himself, he would be bruised too. In himself, he would die. And obviously, this points forward to Jesus. How Jesus solves the problem of sin and death is he takes all of our sin upon himself, and then he dies the death that we should have died. On the cross, he was brutally murdered, taking the punishment that we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And so he took that wage and he took it and he said, I'm going to bear it because you can't. You can't do it on your own. And so I'm going to bear it. I'm going to take the punishment. I'm going to take all of the sin and your death upon myself. And it wasn't just from the sweat of his face that he worked the ground. There in the garden, he sweat great drops of blood. And when he went to the tree and died, he was buried and he went into the ground. And in verse 19, it says that you shall return to the ground. The word for ground in the Hebrew is Adama. And you might remember when man was created, Adam was created out of the ground, out of the Adama. It's kind of a play on words. Adam was created out of the Adama. So the first Adam created out of the Adama, returned back to the ground, back to the Adama. And Paul identifies Jesus as the second Adam. The second Adam who would go into the ground, into the Adama, but from it he would burst forth and he would be resurrected into a new kind of man, a new kind of person. A resurrected body would burst forth from the ground, perfect completely free from sin, and would never die. And that resurrection was a testimony, the stamp of approval, saying that now death and evil has been defeated forever. Death is no more. That is what he is saying. That's what the resurrection teaches. So that way, even though there's difficulty, even though there's trial, even though there's death in this life, we can look forward to a resurrection where we will rise again to never die. The second Adam went into the ground and he came out a new kind of man. The first fruits is what it says in 1 Corinthians. The first one of all of us where we will all be resurrected. And now in our lives today, our mission has been restored. Yes, there's still a struggle. Yes, there's still pain, but our mission has been restored. Think about the mission for family to fill the earth, the, that mission for family, we are now a part of the family of God. <laughs> we're now, we're all brothers and sisters. I don't, haven't met almost all of you, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And the world is being filled up with brothers and sisters who are part of the family of God and are adopted by the king. And now we can fill the earth by evangelizing and spreading the kingdom of God. As more people become a part of the kingdom, we're filling it up. And the mission that was originally designed and given to us is being restored through the gospel. And not only that, our work itself, when we go to work and we do it excellently and honestly 
and as a reflection of God's character with love and joy and endurance, when we do that, the kingdom of God then is expanded through our work because his reign is made real in our lives and in our work. His reign where there's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, when there's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit in our work, his kingdom is expanded. So our mission has been restored through the gospel. And so really what I wanted to tell you this morning is to first take heart that even though when we look around in this world and there's a lot of problems, eventually the evil will be destroyed finally, totally. Death will be reversed and we will live with God forever. And also, if you don't believe that, then I encourage you to think about it, to pray about it, to talk with people here. And they will explain it. They will talk about it. Because in my experience, it is only the Bible that provides this kind of hope in the midst of struggle and pain. It is only the Bible that can provide that. And so if you don't have that hope, I encourage you to talk to somebody. And for those of you who do have that hope, to walk in joy and in peace and in expectation because he has won the war and death is defeated. So Lord, I thank you that you have defeated evil, that through the gospel, our mission is restored. Through the gospel, we have new life. And through the gospel, we have the expectation of a resurrected body that lives forever and that all evil and all sin will be done away with and we get to be with you forever. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is so amazing and that it starts with you. And I pray that if anyone here needs to know you for the first time, that they would. And if anyone here needs to be reminded of the good news, pray that they would feel it, that they would know it, and that your Holy Spirit would impress it into their hearts. And that we would go from this place restored and on mission for your glory, for your kingdom, motivated by your grace. So we praise you, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.